All right, so we start Lent where we oftentimes do in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to encourage you to open the Pew Bible to 908. Or if you have a Bible on your device, you can um, look at it. We are at Matthew 26, starting with 36. Again, 908 in your Pew Bible. Gethsemane was, um, again, as I said, right outside of Jerusalem. We don't exactly know where it is. There are about four different places that claim to be Gethsemane. Um, but it was a, a grove of trees. There were olive trees there. And again, it would have been cool under the shade of the hot sun. It would have been filled with birds. It would have been quiet with the noise of the city being blocked out by all the trees and the leaves. Um, and it just would have been just a, a nice retreat place, walkable distance. And Jesus went there, um, gosh, regularly to just be in prayer. That was his centering place. That was his retreat place. Now, I had a new learning this, uh, this year studying. You know, I've been studying this text every year for uh, you know, these Gethsemane texts because they're in all four Gospels for years and years and years. And I learned something new in my research. And that is the name of what Gethsemane means. Anybody know what the name Gethsemane means? I thought it would have something to do with olives. But no. The name Gethsemane actually is Gethsemane, which means oil press. So it was named, the garden was named after the communal equipment because they would have these oil presses around the outside and people would be able to go into the garden, pick some olives, squeeze them and press them for oil. And so that's how the garden got its name, the garden of the oil press. I see a strange irony in that because... Um, what we are reading here is how Jesus is actually being pressed, how he's being emotionally squeezed. That's what's happening to him here. Um, he's in pain, he's in conflict, he's in crisis. His fully human self and his fully divine self, probably for the most severe time in his life, maybe even for the first time in his life, are in huge conflict. Because the divine self is knowing that he goes to die, the human side of himself is kind of like, I don't want to do that, right? I mean, look at how many times in this text, in verse 38, I am deeply grieved even to death. He goes to the ground and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So again, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So he just over and over and over was in crisis and despair. He does eventually get it together and when he knows they're coming, he's just like, look, my betrayer's at hand. He's like, all right. I mean, the divine does win out and courage wins the day. Let's face this. Now, Luther had a German word for this, or Germans had a word that Luther used regularly. That word is Anfechtungen. There is no equivalent English word to the word Anfechtungen. But Anfechtungen is this experience of complete spiritual, emotional, physical breakdown. 
It is to be so emotionally rent asunder that there are physical manifestations, that there are consequences physically. It just breaks you completely down in spirit and then physically and mentally, emotionally. Not a lot of people know this, um, although I've been somewhat honest about it over the years, but Luther would have been considered unstable. (laughs) He might have been institutionalized in today's world. The guy was kind of half nuts sometimes, right? Um, And so um, he really struggled with that. And he would talk about his Anfechtungen, his um, just complete breakdown. And that's what we see in the scriptures. Anfechtungen is rooted in the fact that God is forsaking me, that I'm completely alone, that God has removed God's self from the very innards of me, that I am alone and apart. I am completely forsaken. And that's the root of Anfechtungen, this belief that God is absent. And that's what we see in this text. In other tellings of the garden story, the Gethsemane story, Jesus is sweating to the point of blood dripping from his forehead. That's how broken he is. So that's what we see happening here. But again, he becomes resolved and courage does win the day. He is ready to face the soldiers when they arrive. I don't know if you've ever had to face death if you've ever had to muster the courage to look faith, uh, death in the face and say, all right, I could die here, right? This could literally be the end of me. But that is something that we don't have to do very often in our very comfortable North American Christian life. We don't have to worry much about actually facing death. We're a comfortable people And I think right now we have an appreciation uh, for this happening in Ukraine. This is why our hearts go out so strongly to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters because average folks are are looking death in the face. They just are. I mean, outgunned, outmanned, families being ripped apart, mothers and children, Going and um, not knowing if they'll ever come back home again or if the home that they come back to will at all resemble anything that they once knew. Men, young men staying behind to fight. Even some women, normal housewives, taking up arms to defend their nation. That's courage. That is courage. I think we, especially in Nebraska, have a special sense of this because I believe we do better than the rest of our nation with regard to honoring our military and first responders. It's the same principles. When ordinary folks go out and face death, we know that our military stand in harm's way for us and for our freedom. We know that first responders, Um, police and county sheriff and we know that um, even those who are EMTs and fire and rescue oftentimes put their life on the line and face the danger of death every single day on our behalf for us right and that is so much of why we respect them so thoroughly 
It's not just what they do, it's the fact that it takes courage for them to do their job every single day. And it's that courage that we admire. The same with the people of Ukraine. Every single minute of every single day in these days, they look death in the face and they live with courage. Well, last fall, we went to an online conference for the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, and we heard this pastor, Tom Berlin, who is simply a parish pastor who writes, he wrote this book on courage. It's a short and easy read. Again, we sell it at our cost and our one cent if you're interested, but he has a lot of good things to say. It's not a Lent book. It's not a a book about our Lenten journey, but we've adapted it to that because Tom Berlin has some really good things to say about courage. Here's one of the things that he has to say. Courage is an essential part of living well, and it's an absolute requirement if one is going to follow Jesus in any meaningful sort of way, especially in times of hardship. If you're going to follow Jesus, it takes courage. Why? Well, it's becoming ever more so evident that we are in less and less a Christian, certainly less and less a faithful Uh, culture in our United States. And so um, living as a Christian is countercultural. We have to live kind of in many ways against what we perceive and the choices that people make around us. And so it takes courage to live as a Christian in today's world. Um, I think courage is an admirable quality. I think courage is the quality that we have that we aspire to, right? When we look at people and we say they're courageous, we're saying something great about them. I also think courage is actually aspirational, right? We don't ever feel like we have enough of it. And even if we were super courageous over here at this point in our life, in this chapter, doing this thing, man, I I couldn't believe that I faced that with such courage. And then we're called to be courageous over here. We don't say, oh, well, I've got all that courage from over there that I'll take with me. No, we discredit ourselves and we go, yeah, but that was then and that was different. I don't know that I can do this and help, right? So we're always feeling like, No matter how much courage we used to have, we are always feeling like, I don't have enough of it now. And the courage that I have maybe doesn't apply to the courage that I need. So courage is aspirational. We always aspire to have more. We never feel like we have enough of it. We never quite feel courageous enough. Well, I want you to turn to your neighbor or somebody close to you and just say, to them, who was the most courageous person that you've known in your life? In person, who is the most courageous person you personally have known in your life? Turn to the person next to you. I'll give you a minute or two. All right. And now, when you're not around, is courage a word that would be used to describe you? Do you think somebody would say, oh, that person's courageous when you're not around? 
<laughs> Who knows what they'll say to your face. But, um, but if you're not around, is courage a way that you would be described? On your mark, get set, go. To your neighbor. That was fast. Tom Berlin, Pastor Berlin would say that um, Jesus was the most courageous person in the history of the world. And I think Lent kind of proves that in some ways, right? But what's interesting is he points out in his book, Jesus only used the word courage once in the gospels as they are recorded. So I think it's really interesting is he really never talked about courage and yet he was the guy who displayed courage more than anyone else we could point to. And so his courage was definitely not about trying to tell you to be courageous. His courage, his instruction on courage was very much about watch me be courageous. Here's the one spot where he um, talks about courage. Again, if you want to open up your pew Bibles, you are welcome to on 987. It's nothing that we've raised to this point in the service yet, but it is at the end of John's gospel. And right before Jesus gets betrayed and arrested, he has this long fellowship time that turns into a teaching time. It's actually called the priestly prayer section of John's gospel because he prays for his disciples. And basically he says to them in verse 32, the hour is coming indeed ha has come when you will be scattered each one to his home and you will leave me alone. Basically he's saying you guys are gonna desert me because you're scared because you don't have enough courage. He says, yet I'm not alone because the Father's with me. And then he said, I've said this to you now so that you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. As Berlin points out, which helps us, is Jesus doesn't say some magical potion to have courage. He basically says, look, have courage courage because I've conquered the world. So by your connection to me, by your affiliation with me, if you believe in me, if you believe me, you'll have courage. And so I, I'm hoping that you will be able to draw on that, right? Now there's a nuance that I want to make sure that you hear here. And that is the difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. Berlin doesn't talk about this, but it was something that kind of was noteworthy to me as I reflected on what he had written. A lot of us believe in Jesus, and then we're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in that guy. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yikes. There's a difference between that and I believe in Jesus, and I actually believe what he said. And I'm willing to live by that because I believe him. I believe this to be true, right? And so when he says, have courage and faith in me, because your courage will come from me, I believe that. And I believe that when we believe that fact, it yields greater courage. I'm reminded of a story that my mentor, Tony Danielson, told me. Tony Danielson was my first Lutheran pastor, and he um, is the guy who um, suggested I go to seminary. So if you don't like me, I can give you 
Tony's contact information and you can contact him. Um, but Tony w- grew up in Iron Mountain, Michigan, up in Dodder UP, right? He was a Uper. Um, and Iron Michi- Iron, and he, Tony's in his mid-80s, and so he tells the story of when he was a kid, so a long time ago, and there were a lot of lumberjacks up there, back in the day when lumberjacks looked like that, two guys with a long saw, right? And he talks about this guy, Ed Slattery, who was a lumberjack and who was as tough as, a, you know, an axe handle, and how Ed had two daughters that he loved more than life itself, And those two daughters contracted viral meningitis and they died at the beginning of Holy Week. Had the funeral. And then on Easter morning, everybody sat there and wondered what was going to happen because it was hard to communicate in those days up there. And Ed was scheduled to be the lector on Easter morning. Easter morning rolls around, Ed shows up right before the service, and right at the time of the reading, he crawls up into the lectern, this big hulk of a man, and he reads the Easter story. And afterwards, in the coffee hour, when asked by his friend Ben Carlson, how could you do that, Ed? How did you have the courage to be able to read the scripture on Easter morning? And he said, because I believe the story because I believe the story. Again, our goal for you in this series and my goal for you in this day is to understand that is believing the story is the place where your courage starts. Your courage doesn't have to come from you. It comes from your God in Christ Jesus. These words from Ben, or sorry, these words from um, Berlin um, are so helpful to us when he writes, courage is not the rare attribute of a small set of great men and women more daring or braver than the rest of us. It is the gift from God, it is the gift God gives ordinary people when we seek a clear vision for what God would have us do. Do you have enough courage to face the day? Do you have enough courage to live as a Christian in this world? Do you have enough courage to walk with Jesus to the cross? Do you have enough courage to look death in the face? If you believe, if you believe in God, if you believe Jesus, you will. 